several days, actually two or three weeks, I've been reading through the books of Joshua and Judges. And in reading through those books, it became apparent to me that the story of the founding of Israel is the story of three generations. The first generation, beginning with that wonderful series of miracles, the plagues that God brought upon Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and then a 40-year trek round and round through the wilderness. That was the first generation. The second generation entered the promised land, again beginning with the miracle of the crossing of the River Jordan. They fought battles. And then they had the heavy and sometimes onerous responsibility of distributing the land and organizing the nation. And then came the third generation that had no skin in the game. The land had been conquered, the nation had been established, everything was in order, and everything was handed then to the third generation. The third generation failed. They began to compromise. They began to behave like the nations about them. And tragedy began to come upon Israel. As I thought about the story of Israel in three generations, I could not help but thinking about Tulsa Christian Fellowship and how we have seen a first generation and a second generation and we're on the cusp of a third generation. What does that mean for us? And so this morning I want us to think about our church using the story of Israel as an analogy, thinking about the various generations and what life has been. We're going to talk a lot about history today. And I want to be as discreet as I can and sometimes not name names because it might be harmful and yet to be honest about our history. Remember that Israel began by being delivered from bondage, the bondage of Egyptian slavery. And then the hand of God was upon them as they went from place to place. The ten plagues, the various miracles that took place during the 40 years that they wandered through the wilderness. And some was providential and some was clearly miraculous. And yet it's interesting in the midst of all of that, they kept grumbling <laughs> They never seemed to be satisfied with what God was doing. After the destruction of the Egyptian army, the opening of the Red Sea, they traveled three days into the wilderness of Shur. And when they arrived there, their water bottles had become empty. They hadn't found any streams or ponds where they could refresh their water supply. And then they came to Merah. And here was water, but it was bitter and they could not drink it. And Moses cried out to God, and God showed Moses a particular tree. And Moses took that tree. I don't know the scripture says tree. Did he pull it up or break a branch off? We don't know. But at least he took the tree and threw it into the water and became sweet. 
and all the people and their cattle could drink. And then they traveled on to Elam. And when they came to Elam, there were 12 springs and 70 date uh, palms, and they stayed there for a while. They refreshed themselves in that oasis. They ate of the dates. They drank the water. They relaxed and rested from their journey. No doubt they picked some dates and stuck them in their bags to take along with them as they continued on. They still had uh, some raw dough that they had brought with them, unleavened bread from Egypt. And they set out there and entered into a, another wilderness, the wilderness of sin. By now they had been walking for two months and 15 days. And now their food supplies ran out. The unleavened bread was gone, the dates were gone, all had been consumed, and they began to gripe. (laughs) And they said, would that we had died in Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate bread to the full. Now you see, this was God's plan. God planned for them to run out of food. (laughs) God planned for them to run out of water that they might learn to depend wholly and totally and completely upon Him. And so the first thing you did, you recall, was provide manna. In the morning, they would get up after the dew had left, like coriander seed, it just covered the ground, it was white, and they said, what is this? Which is what manna means, what is it? And they could gather it up, and they fixed it all kinds of ways. They had manicotti, they had all, all, any way you could fix manna. God provided that. Of course, later they got tired of that. And so God then in the evening caused a wind to blow from the sea and they had quail. So they had quail and manna. And it's interesting, sometimes you see on some documentary of, uh, you know, on television and botanists trying to explain this manna And they say, there's this, there's that, and the other. None of that makes any sense, does it? It makes no sense because God said that every man, uh, every family gather one omer per person and no more. And don't try to keep it overnight because if you do, it'll spoil and worms will be in it. Some folks tried it, and that's exactly what happened. In other words, they thought we'd gather today so we don't have to go out tomorrow. That didn't work. Not only that, God said on the sixth day, gather enough for two days and it won't spoil overnight. And they did that and indeed it didn't. And some folks on the Sabbath went out to gather and there wasn't any. So for six days a week, there was manna miraculously provided. They could not keep it overnight except on the Six nights, so on the Sabbath they were to not go gather, and none appeared at all on the seventh day. So let the folks on the History Channel do all they can to figure it out, but it isn't going to (laughs) work. It was a divine act of God supplying for his people, saying, learn to depend upon me. And it's interesting as you read Through Exodus and as you read through Joshua, every time God did something like that, it always says God did this to test them. 
first of all, to test them whether they depend upon him, but also to test him, test them to see if they would do exactly what God said. And every time they didn't do exactly what God said, it didn't turn out well. Every time they tried to substitute something for exactly what God had commanded, it didn't turn out well. And so every time God's provision or a miracle of God happened, it always says it was done to test them. Not just provide for them, but to test them. Later they ran out of water again. And people started complaining and God told Moses to gather the elders and the people in front of a rock. And he said, go out to that rock and take your rod and the one to which Jim referred in the battle of the Amalekites. Strike it and water will come forth. Moses did. They struck it and water came forth. This was early in the journey. This was at Rephidim before they had come to uh, the Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given. So God provided for his people, and this was done to test them. Now years later, toward the very end of their journey, toward the end of that 40 years, again they ran out of water, and the people started to complain. And Moses went to God, what am I going to do? And God said, go, gather the people and gather the elders in front of the rock, speak to it, and water will come forth. Not strike it, but speak to it. And Moses gathered the people and he took his rod and instead of doing what God had commanded, he struck the rock three times in anger, disgusted, lost his patience with the people. Water came forth, but Moses and Aaron had to pay a price. God said, because you did not regard me as holy, you didn't do the way I said. Because you did not regard me as holy, you will never enter the promised land. Not long after that, Moses and Aaron and Moses, or rather Aaron's son Eliezer, went to the top of Mount Hor. Moses took the priestly garments off of Aaron and placed them upon Aaron's son Eliezer, and Aaron died. He could not travel on to the promised land because he and Moses had not done it the way God said do it. And then later you recall, Moses himself ascended Nebo, and from that peak was able to look over into the promised land, but never enter it, because he had not regarded God as holy in the matter of striking the rock. During all of those years, time after time when the people didn't deserve it, God intervened. And even when they disobeyed God, one time they were griping so much that God let a bunch of snakes come in and start biting folks. And a bunch died, and they cried out. Moses said, what am I going to do? God said, make a, brazen, a fiery serpent. He made it out of, out of bronze, brass rather, and put it upon a pole. And said, now anytime somebody is bitten, let them look at that, and they'll be healed. And they were. God provided even when they didn't deserve it. That's in Numbers 21, 4 to 9. It just seemed that everything they did, one way or another, good or bad, God provided. And there was success. They defeated the Amalekites, as Jim described today. 
And God's provision was always there. Success was theirs. As I see that as somewhat of an analogy for Tulsa Christian Fellowship, there are many things that fit. As Israelite was delivered from bondage, Egyptian bondage, TCF began when a group of folks got delivered from bondage. We know the story, the story of Bill Sanders who came in 1967, November, to Brookside Baptist Church. Bill had been a seminary student in Kentucky. Bill, Bill had grown up in Tulsa, graduate of Rogers High School, uh, outstanding baseball player to you. I've seen articles in which it says Bill Sanders defeats the opposing team. He was so skilled as, a, as an athlete. And he could have gone ahead and become a professional athlete, but there was a call upon his life. He went to Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, ministered to one church, and then went to a mission church that ran about 117 people. And this was Fern Creek, Fern Creek Baptist Church. And while Bill was there, that congregation grew to a point of having 1,100 people in Sunday school after four years. Amazing, isn't it? God had gifted this man with an anointing, and especially the anointing of an evangelist. Now, I talked to a doctor some years ago, an osteopathic physician, when my wife was in the hospital. He was one of the attending doctors. And he was on a pulpit search committee that was put in place when Dr. Maple resigned from Bookside Baptist. Dr. Maple was a true Baptist patriarch, a gentleman, highly respected by everyone. And the congregation was that typically dignified middle-class Baptist church. Dr. Maple went to serve in an administrative office in Baptist mission. And so the pulpit supply committee and this doctor himself was very strongly saying we need to find a spirit-filled preacher who will come to this church and enliven it. And they found Bill Sanders, but he had no idea (laughs) what he had found. Now Bill, praying one Sunday morning at 2 o'clock in the morning, had begun to pray in tongues while he was in Kentucky kept it to himself, never preached it. It was a part of his private devotions. When he came to Brookside Baptist, Bill, being the born evangelist, quickly began to organize teams to go out in the neighborhood and call. And these were the days in which Peoria was the restless ribbon. And any of us who were around in those days know what that was. And if you were not around in those days, there's no way we can make you understand. <laughs> it was filled with young people. People were griping. They, it took an hour and a half, or, pardon me, 30 minutes to get a hot dog at the Wiener Schnitzel because young people so crowded that place. It was, it was all up and down the street. Christians didn't go on the restless ribbon. Now, there was an old man, and I never was able to find out that man's name. There was an old man who one night as they were getting ready to go out and visit the neighborhood said to Bill, 
Bill, why don't we take a walk on Peoria, you and I, tonight, instead of going out and knocking on doors? And Bill and that man did. They walked from 36th Street, where the church building is, to 51st on one side, back down the other. And from that time on, Bill Sanders' heart had been captured by those young people. And so they began evangelizing. And young people started getting saved. And they started coming to Brookside Baptist Church, which was very upsetting. First of all, they had long hair. Secondly, they didn't dress like they should on Sunday morning. And Baptists start by filling the back row. These kids sat on the front row. <laughs> and neither did they conduct themselves too well in the service. And so there were some of the leaders in the church and many of the members, they wanted all this stuff to quit. Maybe we even have to get rid of Bill, but you can't fire a Baptist pastor for getting him causing people to uh, pray the sinner's prayer. You can't fire him for that. <laughs> now, there are two stories about what happened next. One is that there was a girl on Peoria who was a daughter of one of the deacons, and through some means she began to speak in tongues, and her father got upset. The other story is that there was a teacher of junior high girls class who did speak in tongues and nobody knows how but she found out Bill did in his private devotions and some of the parents were upset because she was talking about this in girls class came out that Bill did and now those who wanted to stop the young people in their hippie garb from coming to church had a way to fire Bill. He showed up on Wednesday night thought he was there to <laughs> conduct a prayer meeting, and there were about 400 people in the building. The congregation at that time uh, was around 1,200. So about a third of the church was there. And in that night, they brought forth the fact that had been, Bill had been exposed as a tongue speaker, and speaking in tongues is not Baptist doctrine, and Bill was fired, and they said, we pay you for the next 60 days, but as of today... Your services here are ended. What was Bill to do? He was very careful. In that meeting, Bill never defended himself. He just kept quiet and let it happen. He went off to California to spend time with Ralph Wilkerson to try to somehow get his bearings. But there were some people in the church who said, even though our church does not want us ministering on Peoria, we can't stop because God has called us to do it. Seven families met in the home of Jim and Catherine Propater on October 5th, 1969. And the next week they had rented the daycare center which was between Peoria and Riverside, a little closer to Riverside. And on that particular meeting, Willard Hudson wrote about that meeting because he and Nettie were one of the seven couples. He said in that meeting, well, good Baptists, we have to give a tithe. <laughs> and they took the coffee can that the daycare center used for crayons and poured that out and passed it around. They all put in their tithes. And then what do we do with that? Well, we better open a bank account. Well, you can't open a bank account unless you have some kind of a name. 
what will we be? And Willard said a lot of names were floated by and every one of them had Baptist in it some way <laughs> because after all they were Baptists. And finally some man said, well, why don't we just temporarily so we can open the bank account, call it Tulsa Christian Fellowship. And that's what they did. <laughs> and the name stuck. Well, we're a Baptist church and as Baptists we have to have a pastor where can we find one? Bill initially had been urged to start a church. He said, no, I don't want to split Brookside Baptist. I won't do it. But here was this church now. They, they had the, the fourth Sunday, 115 people in this daycare center. So they contacted Bill. And Bill came to become the pastor of this new church. They rented Orville Wright Junior High in November for their first service. And 300 people showed up. And after that, it grew and grew and grew. Now, one thing that helped it was Beth Macklin. Beth Macklin was a writer for the Tulsa World, and she was just enamored with all this. I think she kind of liked Bill a little bit. And so she covered just about everything <laughs> that TCF did. You pick up the paper in the morning to see who had been arrested the night before for drugs, and also to see what TCF had done the night before. It was really uh, exciting times. And uh, Orville Wright, of course, began meeting originally, I mean, uh, TCF originally began meeting in Orville Wright, and then later off to Edison, and then East Central, and then back to Orville Wright. It's interesting, one of Bill's daughters one day asked her mother, aren't we still Baptists? And the older sister said, no, we're right. W-R-I-G-H-T, because that's where they were meeting, although it could have come out another way. But here's the spirit. This group was delivered from denominational and traditional bondage. Chuck and Bill would say, we have only two things the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we follow, not denominations, not tradition. And so as the Israelites were delivered from bondage as they began their journey, so was TCF, a different kind. But there was a freedom in the Lord. You know, it would be almost impossible this morning for me to exaggerate what those years were like. Now, that's an exaggeration. You can always find a way. But the, the, it's just astounding, everything that was taking place. Everybody who was anybody in the charismatic renewal spoke at TCF. David Duplessis, Corey Ten Boom, uh, Bob Mumford, Jamie Buckingham, Simpson, Errol Smith, Keith Green was here, Love Song was here, Maria Von Trapp, you know the song of whether it's song of music or whatever it's called, uh, you know, anybody who was anybody in the movement was here. And this is one of the few places around the nation that everybody who was a speaker wanted to visit and be able to be a part in that venue. It's interesting, early on, TCF became 
have the reputation for immersing people in swimming pools. The very first service in Orville Wright, believe it or not, was actually televised by a radio a TV station. They televised that first service. It was such news. Here's a situation uh, talking about baptisms in the uh, Orville Wright swimming pool. It's just in the articles, it goes on and on about the tile. I don't quite know why that was important. But uh, here's a photograph of folks lined up and people being baptized. This is the first time there were um, 16. And then here's an article about 50. One Sunday morning immersed 50 people in the swimming pool. And here's, here's a, because school rules and possibly state or local swimming pool safety laws made this particular immersion ceremony unique. I would guess, chuckle church member Willard Hudson, we had the only baptism in the country where a certified lifeguard had to be in attendance. <laughs> and that's because it was in the swimming pool. And really, that was a reputation for a while people had. If you mentioned TCFL, yeah, that's a group that immerses people in the swimming pool. That, that's kind of the, the, the way TCF was known in some circles. From the first, Chuck and Bill had a desire. Let me go over to Chuck. When, when, when the news, all these news things about Bill were in the paper, Chuck Ferret or Roberts University, uh, professor of theology, was reading about these, and he contacted Bill, and he said, if you ever need help, let me know. Chuck, with his background in navigators, thought he could be a helpful discipleship and so on. And finally, when things were exploding, Bill turned to Chuck, and Chuck came, and the two of them then provided wonderful leadership. But from the first, they desired to have a New Testament church. Prior to being fired at Brookside, Bill had preached a series of sermons on the book of Acts and the New Testament church. And Chuck had read something by Watchman Nee and that had kind of become his vision. Neither of them had any quite understanding of what it was, but they knew that's what God wanted. Well, even as the first generation of Israelites had to fight some terrible battles, so did that first generation. One of the most hurtful, painful, was the death of Bill's wife, Marty. Now, by this time, the word of faith theology had started to spread out in Tulsa, and frankly, TCF then, to a degree, adopted that theology. Chuck adopted it rather strongly. Bill had always taught that any husband could pray for his wife when she was sick and get well. And he told me about an event one time that there was a retreat and many young men, and he was taught that, and Marty had a headache, and in front of everybody he prayed for, and the headache went away. So a husband could pray for his sick wife and she'd get well. Marty got cancer. Bill and everybody prayed. And Marty didn't get well. She died. Because the word of faith theology had so permeated the church, and Chuck himself had accepted it, Willard and Nettie told me about the anguish Chuck one time just on the floor, God, you've let us down. He was struggling with this. 
But out of that came this wonderful book from the pinnacle of the temple that Bill said greatly influenced him about coming here. So God used Chuck's anguish to bring forth wonderful teaching. Now, I wasn't here, but Chuck and Bill told me that the congregation had peaked at 1,200 per Sunday, and after Marty died, within a month, it dropped to 800 because people said if the leaders had had the faith, Marty would not have died. The tragedy of false doctrine. Other battles had to be fought as well. But that is the first generation. I was just looking at this one brochure. Bruce and I looked at it this past week. My, my, my. Here's some of the things that were going on. Jesus in, Gordon and Sue Wright leading that. Real Life Ranch, Dean and Nelda along. Those are the parents of Deanne Harrison. Insight Ministries, Gene and Carolyn Griffin. New Song Community, Wayne and Stephanie Busada. Carson House Ministry, Tim and Nancy Reside. Tulsa 700 Club Counseling Center, Ken and Doreen Stafford. And Waker uh, Jacobs Well. We could go on and on. It was just amazing, all the things. You know, for five years I was involved in, in uh, uh, psychiatric studies with, with psychiatrists and ministers we met and studied the first year I, I studied with Dr. Merrill Ungerman, liberal Jew. We studied mental illness treatments for various kinds of mental illness. Second year with Dr. Richard Reed, Dr. Richard Reed. We studied psychoanalysis, how to do it, the techniques, and so on and so on. He was called Trichodic Reed, and Dr. Reed was a hedonist, but he came to Christ. And I found as I traced the thing, it was... Somebody at TCF had started the chain of forces that caused that man to come to Jesus. The next year I studied under John Toole. John Toole taught at ORU. We studied reality therapy. Here was a man who was a flamboyant Christian. Dr. Twyla Fox, who was a psychiatrist, saw all this stuff going in the paper. She came to TCF and saw kids in ragged jeans sitting next to women who wore furs and said, there must be something to this. Through that, she came to Jesus through TCF. I spent two years then with the Tulsa Psychiatric Foundation, and Dr. Parkhurst, who was the head of that, was a strong believer. And you trace all the way that these men came to faith, and somewhere, TCF, was in that chain. It was amazing to see how almost everything that happened in that way, TCF somewhere, was in that chain. And that was the first generation. Really the story of the second generation is somewhat like that of Israel's because for those years, 13 years approximately it was, I have to count to get it right, but anyway, for several years TCF was in Wright, Edison, East Central, Orville Wright. Came increasingly difficult. The public school system became less and less friendly toward churches, renting school buildings. And Chuck especially had always said, we want to put our money into people, not buildings. But it finally became 
very difficult. And George Jones, who was the church administrator at the time, found this building. This building originally was a big red furniture warehouse, and it was kind of an international mall. It had import places upstairs, antique stores. Uh, Jimmy's in-laws actually had two shops over there at one time. And then Faith Christian Fellowship had rented it, and then it was empty. And George Jones found it. TCF bought it, moved here in November of 80, and I came in February of 81. And like the Israelites when they came into the promised land, the next task was to get us identified who we really are, to get the structures in place for what a church must and should be as we began to move forward. Second generation of Israel began by witnessing that miracle of crossing the Jordan. They were ready to go against Jericho, but all the kids that had been born while in the wilderness, the men had been circumcised, so I had to stop and circumcise everybody. Sure, I'm glad I wasn't a part of that crowd. <laughs> When they crossed the River Jordan, Joshua said, go in the middle of it, and each tribe pick one man, go pick up a stone, take these 12 stones and a Gilgal bill of pyre, and in future years when people pass by, your sons will say, what meaneth these stones? Tell them the story of miraculously crossing the Jordan River. You know the story of Jericho. The walls fell outward as they conquered, and everything looked like whoopee. Here we go. Well, nearby was the village of Ai, and they thought, well, we'll take it next. But some of the men said, you know, that's so small. We don't need to take all the people up there. Just send two or 3,000. So Joshua sent 3,000 to the little village of Ai. And Ai defeated the troops. 36 Israelites were killed. And Joshua fell on his face. Oh, God, what have you done? Your reputation, our reputation will be destroyed. And God, in essence, said, Why are you praying? Get up off your knees. There is sin in the camp. Because God had said, When you are conquering Jericho, don't take any spoil. Any treasure must be channeled toward the ministry of the tabernacle. Achan saw some gold, a Babylonish garment. Who cares? He grabbed it and hid it in his tent. And because of his sin, 37 Israelites were killed. And you know the story of how by lots he was finally identified and he and all about him was stoned to death and burned by command of God, get rid of sin in the camp. One thing to go through the excitement of fighting battle after battle, after that success after success, and then you come to chapter 13 in Joshua, and from chapter 13 on, page after page after page, it's no longer an exciting story. It's, okay, this family gets this part of ground, and this family gets this part of ground, and this tribe got this, and they said, wait a minute, we don't quite like that. 
One time, here's, here's, the, here's yours, there's a forest and there's a valley, but wait a minute, we don't like that because down here are some Canaanites and they have iron chariots and Joshua said, look, there's a whole bunch of you folks, you outnumber them, go take it, you know. So the, the problem, all of, and then all these commands that God had given concerning the tabernacle, how to functionally work that out, it was a challenge for Joshua and those who were with him to put the nation together to give its identity. Now some of the first generation of TCF are still with us and we thank God for that. And some of them have become second generation and have helped us along the way we have put the church together. But most of us here, all of us in some way are that second generation. One thing that began to dawn on the leadership was that the Bible had said that the leaders, the elders, someday, Hebrews 13, 17, are going to have to give account to God for the flock. How do you do that? Who is the flock? Because at that time, anybody who wanted could come and go, come and go. Strange prophets would come. I remember one prophetess one day came, sat on the back row, spouted out in the service, all kinds of strange stuff. One man, anyway. Well, we need to know who we're going to answer to, <laughs> answer to God for. And so church membership was initiated in 1983 with that very purpose. And those who had been in the church had the opportunity to sign up. The requirements were very clearly, uh, you know, the New Testament plan, faith, repentance, confession, and immersion receiving the Holy Spirit, and then living a faithful life. And so church membership is established, and really just in time. Part of that also was to initiate the church discipline doctrine, and that therefore was important. The Church of Christ at Collinsville had been sued because there was a woman in the church who was having an affair with the city clerk, and uh, the church therefore said, you're living in sin. It, they publicly exposed her. She sued them. And so legally, here are some things you need to do to protect yourself if you're going to exercise church discipline. So the church discipline procedure, the document was prepared and presented so everyone would know about it. Well, but there, there were two visions of small groups at TCF at that time. One was fellowship groups, which is much like our house churches today. And the other were the households, who were formed more or less on militaristic lines, following the navigator's plan. And one of the household leaders then began to have an affair with a woman in the small group. What were we to do? The elders met with the man, pled with him to repent, pled with him to confess his sin, but he refused. And so he was presented, this is the church discipline procedure, and we get to a certain point then, we're going to have to read a letter to the congregation excommunicating you. And I said to him, I will be sitting by the telephone waiting for you to call up to the very moment that letter is read, hoping he had called. But he didn't. 
And so we had to read that letter. You know, we couldn't have done that if we hadn't established church membership just a little bit before. And what a tragic, horrible time. But that was a battle that nobody wanted to fight. And yet, it had to be fought. Sometimes we've had to fight the battle of strange pride. I remember one Sunday, one young man got up and came up here in the pulpit and he said, as David danced in his underwear, so God wants us to dance this morning. Thank God we didn't do that. But, you know, I had to come to the pulpit and address that prophecy. You don't like to address prophecies publicly. Sometimes it's been incorrect doctrine. There was a man, Charles Green, that was brought in by some who were so enamored with him and he taught doctrines that shouldn't go to doctors, we shouldn't use medicine. We had one precious family in the church who had a child die in a church that followed that doctrine. And so it fell upon my shoulders on a given Sunday to go step by step through his teaching and refute it. And who wants to do that? Because some people love the guy and you become the enemy then. And you never want to become the enemy, yet you have to fight the battle. Sometimes the battles had to be fought over certain movements. The worship wars we fought, which are terrible. One time we had a worship team that had a certain view of what ought to go on. And publicly, uh, Bruce and I were rebuked for bowing our heads during worship. You know, we weren't supposed to do that. And one Sunday, one man jumped up and started leading a crowd running around the building. And this is when the elders all sat on the front row. They were, come on, elders, lead. Well, of course, the Bible says everything's been decent in order. We're not going to lead that. Those kinds of horrible things had to be dealt with. One time we had a joint meeting with a group because a speaker was in town, and the leader, one of the leaders of that group confided in Gordon, the reason we want this joint meeting with you is so we can bring the Toronto blessing into TCF. That movement in which people under its influence cluck like chickens and bark like dogs. I was in one meeting, I saw a guy squatting like he's having a bowel movement, somebody laying hands on his head shouting more, more, more. I wasn't sure what was supposed to happen. Glad nothing did. Sometimes there were personality struggles. Some battles were fought out in the open and some behind the scenes. We had some who didn't want us to have missions as our call. Since 1996, praise God, we've had a wonderful time of peace. I have to wonder, is it a Camelot season? I pray it will be forever. The peace will prevail. But our identity is clear. When Bill, eight, eight months after I came, Bill was diagnosed with Parkinson's. By that time, if you looked at the church stationery, it said the pastors are Bill Sanders, Chuck Farah, and Jim Garrett. And Chuck's bipolar illness made him less and less able to function. And I felt, what am I going to do? I'm the only man standing. And I knew there's no way I could ever be the charismatic personality of Bill Sanders. Nor could I ever be the nationally and in some cases internationally known the scholar that was Chuck Farrell. 
And I'd briefly pondered, should we bring in some talented preacher? Well, we had elders at that time, but not quite really functioning. <laughs> and I thought, since TCF has always said it is a New Testament church, and we have that in doctrine, we have it in life, we have it in mission, but we don't have it in church leadership. And therefore, we will dedicate ourselves to moving from a pastor-led church with elders to truly being a church built upon the New Testament leadership model. If you have people in a boat that's going rapidly across the lake and you take a sharp turn and there are passengers, some will fall overboard. <laughs> but if you make a gradual turn, you will take most passengers with you. We made a gradual turn. It took about 15 years to really get to the place where not only intellectually but emotionally we had all earned or rather accepted the New Testament church model. There are just so many things that were, have been done by the second generation that have not been easy but necessary. And now I ask, what will happen when the second generation goes and the third generation becomes the church? Joshua 24, 31 Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. And then Judges chapter 2 beginning with verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. And then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. I challenge the third generation don't be like the third generation of Israel. Remember who we are. The price that has been paid under the leadership of the Holy Spirit for this church 
to be what it is. You will receive a church that will be existing in one of the most difficult cultures that has ever existed. This culture is increasingly becoming an enemy to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will it overcome you? Or will you allow it to define you? Some time ago we illustrated this and I want to do it again. With a tube before that's three feet long and you throw it into a pond, it floats. You can see it. For the most part, it's above the water. But after a while, the water begins to permeate the tube before and it gets lower and lower and finally its top is with the surface and in time it's gone and has just become a part of the pond. Culture will do that if it can. And it's trying. And unfortunately more and more of the church world today is afraid to be a society that is not only an alternative to, but in opposition to the culture that is trying to own it. And so I lay that challenge before whoever that third generation will be, and I have no idea who it will be, nor does anyone, nor when the second generation will begin to shuffle off this mortal coil and that third generation become the church. But I plead with you, don't be like Israel's third generation. Stand for what God has made us to be. In Jesus' name.